Hello and welcome back to On The Mic. I'm your host, Dani Osman, and we're kicking off the year with a rather serious topic, addiction. To tell us more about the subject is Andrew DeRosa, an addiction psychotherapist with Promises Healthcare. He's also the chairman of We Care Community Services, a charity-based addictions recovery centre. As you're listening, do take note that this interview was recorded sometime before the new year. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you today? I'm okay. I'm good. Um, I think we're going to be touching on a very interesting subject today, so I'm looking forward to it. Um, so just to start things off, can I get you to introduce yourself and tell listeners what you do? Okay. Well, uh, my name's uh, Andrew DeRosa. Uh, I'm a psychotherapist uh, helping people with uh, addictions, going through recovery, and assisting their families and friends uh, work colleagues uh, and all the people around them really to help them stay in recovery and make um, make a new life for themselves. Mm, okay, and what, what drew you into this work? Well, um, what drew me was really the, uh, the difficulty that people face uh, with addictions and the terrible uh, toll it takes on them and also on the people around them mm-hmm. and the probability that if they can find uh, a recovery path that they will change their life around. Uh, so that's really the genesis. Yeah. Okay, and it's gonna be it's a pretty broad topic that we're going to be touching on today. But can we start with um, what's the clinical definition of addiction? Yeah, it's a good starting point. Mm-hmm. So there's a clinical definition, and there's the sort of common definition outside the clinic, which everyone's mm-hmm. familiar with, right. and we use the word addiction uh, for a lot of things. Um, the clinical definition doesn't use the word addiction at all, mm, so you okay. don't see that word anywhere. <laughs> interesting. That's interesting. Okay. So how how so would we de- um, how would it be defined in like in, in the field of work that you do? Yeah. So in in my field, um, we talk about mental disorders, mm. and we define, for example, alcoholism or addiction to alcohol. We define it as an alcohol use disorder, mm, just okay. as we define uh, cigarettes uh, cigarette use as. Um, a tobacco use disorder mm. or a substance use disorder if it's another kind of drug or a gambling disorder okay. or a, 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 a compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Right. So we call them mental disorders and there are criteria that we use mm-hmm. and they are laid out uh, in uh, what's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders uh, by the American Psychiatric Association mm-hmm. which we use here in Singapore and also by the World Health Organization and their international classification of diseases. So there are these massive terms that we refer to looking right. at the various diagnostic criteria. So just for the layman, like at what point in time there's um, just something like a behavior or uh, like um, taking a substance turn into addiction? Is there, it's like yeah. a, is there a layman definition that people can um, relate to? Yeah, I mean, there are rules of thumb. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the, the journey is a somewhat personal one. Mm-hmm. So the, the expert is the person who's suffering the compulsive behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only problem with that is that they also have wrapped around it a lot of denial mm-hmm. and a lot right. of intellectualization and so on. So 
Um, in any case, the, the rule of thumb is pretty much the same rule of thumb as we use clinically, which is, um, you know, is this person doing this stuff repeatedly mm -hmm. uh, and is it causing them and the people around them distress and is it causing dysfunction in their lives, their social lives, their family life, their work life, uh, their health and so on. So it's really a question of um, degree, you know, how often and for how long have people been using this? And then how much pain are they and how much suffering are they causing and how intense is that suffering, notwithstanding that suffering, they're mm. continuing the behavior. Yeah. Right. And, um, and most people in their heads, they think addiction involves stuff like illegal drugs or alcohol. Is it possible to yeah. get addicted to like uh, everyday kind of things? Can you get addicted to an activity, say like exercise or even something like <clears throat> benign like coffee? Yeah. Yeah, these are all, all have psychoactive effects and they can become uh, compulsive. Uh, the, the key though, for uh, if we wanted to use the word addiction, the key uh, for determining whether it's a mental disorder that needs recovery, needs mm -hmm. intervention, is whether it's causing suffering, whether it's causing suffering to themselves and other people and how much suffering it's causing. Mm -hmm. If I take exercise, for example, perhaps if, I, um, if I'm completely obsessive about exercise, I might take steroids, which have a terrible, terrible destructive effect on my on my body mm -hmm. uh, i might be exercising and spending all that time and neglecting my studies or neglecting my work or neglecting my family um, i might have you know some really serious injuries that i keep powering through and causing yet more serious injury i might have a dysmorphic uh, view of my own body mm. uh, which is totally out of touch with reality and i'm obsessed about this uh uh, unrealistic uh, view of, of my body and I might associate who I am, my very being, with exercise in my mm -hmm. body. Okay, so I become rather detached from having an intimate relationship with anyone, including myself. Mm, right. <laughs> so yes, it's possible. But you know, the, the things that people talk about, like a chocolate addiction and this and that, mm -hmm. um, they all have to ultimately, for, for recovery to be a possibility, they all have to ultimately cause quite significant distress and impairment in their mm. lives. Right. And um, from what you've been describing, it sounds like uh, addiction, a lot of it has a psychological dependence on substance or uh, an activity. Uh, is there a physical aspect to it? Are some people... Yeah. Uh, is there any evidence yeah. that there are people, some people are more predisposed, maybe genetically, to becoming addicts? Well, there are two questions there yeah. you've asked. Uh, well, the first one is, uh, you know, is is it simply psychological? Mm -hmm. Meaning, is it simply just um, perhaps relieving tension, relieving distress of some sort, depression, anxiety, and so on? Is it simply something uh, psychological where mm -hmm. I need this in order to relieve psychological symptoms? Mm -hmm. Or is there something physiological that's going on um, too? And the answer to that is that over a period of time, any activity or substance uh, that has a psychoactive effect on our brain mm -hmm. will eventually uh, lead us um, to physiological uh, dependence. Right. So in other words, brain changes, the mm -hmm. neurology in the brain, it all changes and we do become physically dependent, meaning mm -hmm. we have withdrawal symptoms, we get a sensation of tolerance, meaning we need mm -hmm. to do more and more of it in order to mm -hmm. get the same effect. Um, and we do have this change in our, um, our uh, um, prefrontal cortex, which mm -hmm. changes how we how we um, reflect on things, how we plan, how we uh, look at our behavior objectively, mm -hmm. and try and think through the consequences of our behavior. So it does change uh, our cognitions, mm -hmm. which is why you see, of course, people denying that they have an addiction and so on. It, it also changes our physiological stress levels. It ratchets right. it up 
causing people to, of course, use that, that behavior in order to manage their stress, but it ratchets it up, makes us much more uh, predisposed to, to stress, anxiety, and depression. Um, so there are a number of physiological changes that can mm -hmm. be traced through neural imaging, you know, uh, functional MRIs, for example, we right. can see the changes in the brain. Um, you asked a question about genetics, and this is a really good topic because mm -hmm. to, to, to give you the bottom line, mm -hmm. um, there is no single gene that leads to any particular addiction. We haven't mm -hmm. found one. <laughs> okay. What we, know, what we know is that there is a vulnerability, a statistical mm -hmm. number we can put to a vulnerability to addictions. Okay. So, for example, in, in these experiments that deal with monozygotic twins, you know, um, mm -hmm. identical twins, we know that um, if one twin has an addiction, 50% likelihood the other one does. This is really high, and that's okay. higher than fraternal. That's higher than fraternal twins who don't share exactly the same DNA. Mm. So we know there must be some genetic predisposition, and there are figures out there that show probabilities for uh, cocaine use, for example, is extremely high genetic mm -hmm. vulnerability, so 70%, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, smoking is extremely high genetic vulnerability to. Uh, having a, an addiction to nicotine, very high, it's in sort of 60, 70%. Mm -hmm. So what, what we're saying, and, and alcohol's 50%, mm -hmm. 40%, something like that. So what we're saying is that if I, if I have this genetic predisposition and I'm interacting, and that gene is interacting in the environment, mm -hmm. I'm vulnerable to becoming uh, addicted to particular substances or behaviors. And, and how yeah. do environmental factors play a part? Well, their genes don't exist uh, in uh, in isolation of mm -hmm. environment. So there's always that interaction, and genes can be um, environment can be protective. Mm -hmm. So those genes don't express themselves, mm -hmm. or epigenes, technically speaking, mm -hmm. um, don't express themselves. Or the environment can be quite uh, risk, mm -hmm. uh, uh, quite risky, and so I get very vulnerable. Um, the, the very common ones here in Singapore that we see mm -hmm. is a very high incidence of um, adverse childhood events. Mm, so it's okay. very high here in Singapore. One in three people in Singapore have mm -hmm. experienced an adverse one or more adverse childhood events. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of typical as trauma in childhood and neglect in childhood, uh, perhaps physical uh, abuse as well as uh, psychological abuse, perhaps one parent uh, has, you know, is divorced or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the parents have divorced. Uh, so there are things like that, adverse childhood events. It's very common here in Singapore. Mm -hmm. The other is some peer pressure, um, perhaps a genetic or, or physical, uh, if you like, um, right. tendency towards impulsivity, mm -hmm. towards novelty, towards excitement. Mm -hmm. uh, that would make people vulnerable. Um, there is um, peer pressure and mm -hmm. wanting to belong, wanting to be part of a group. Um, and then the availability, availability of cigarettes, for example, for mm. minors, right. widespread in Singapore. It's very easy for, for kids to get cigarettes in Singapore, as is alcohol. Mm -hmm. Slightly more difficult, but still, still possible. Mm -hmm. um, so availability is another thing. And then there's socioeconomic factors. Mm. Broadly speaking, the lower down you are on the socioeconomic scale, the more vulnerable you are to addictions to alcohol, uh, tobacco, and substance use, gambling, and so on. Um, so there are lots of things combining. There's no one single thing for any one individual. And frankly, my own view is that uh, there are as many causes of addictions as there are people with addictions. Okay. So it's pretty unique. Yeah. And um, when it comes to the treatment of addiction, what, what does this generally involve? Yeah. So, <clears throat> as there are very <laughs> a lot of different uh, different people suffering in different ways, um, the the uh, the addiction treatment has to be tailored to what they're willing to do at that mm -hmm. particular time. 
over time, they may be more willing to do more things or different things. Mm -hmm. So we, we really have to accept people as they come in through the door and what they're willing to accept. The starting point, of course, is accepting that uh, I do have um, an uncontrolled behavior and mm -hmm. that it's caused havoc in my life. My life is unmanageable. So that's kind of the first step. Mm -hmm. uh, thereafter, there are a number of treatments uh, that, that have seemed to have worked for many people. One is joining uh, a recovery group. Which mm -hmm. is, this is not therapy, but a group like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics right. Anonymous, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous or Gamblers Anonymous mm -hmm. and going through the 12-step program. Okay. There's, a, there's a, an equivalent that doesn't involve the word God, although most people in those rooms are, are agnostic or atheist, but some people get very, uh, very upset with the concept of a higher power. And so there's something called smart recovery here in Singapore mm, okay. that is uh, highly secular. Okay. Um, so that's one area. The other area is, um, is a lot of tools to manage uh, withdrawal symptoms, urges and cravings, uh, to manage depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, there are there are tools like mindfulness and meditation, uh, tools to um, to manage um, uh, volatility and in, in emotions, uh, interpersonal um, uh, actions. Like, for mm -hmm. example, rebuilding relationships that have been slowly destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, physical self care. There's a lot about right. uh, exercise, about food, sleep, uh, that kind of thing. Um, the interventions tend to vary depending on the person's presentation. There, there are different uh, problems that people are grappling with. And then we have to look through priorities. Mm -hmm. For example, someone who comes in who's suicidal right. uh, um, and or self-harming, then we have to address that first immediately. Mm -hmm. um, and then over time, perhaps we're addressing other things. But So there'll be, there'll be priorities. And then people come in with multiple addictions. Mm -hmm. And so we, have to, we may have to pick and choose which one is the worst. Uh, that's causing the most damage to themselves and others. And they also come in with multiple um, mental uh, disorders. Mm. Um, for example, a bipolar disorder, uh, schizophrenia, but also personality disorders um, like um, bipolar, uh, sorry, like um, borderline personality disorders mm -hmm. or narcissistic personality disorders or antisocial personality disorders. Right. And we have to address those alongside the actual uh, addictive behavior. And and you mentioned like uh, these like uh, narcissistic disorders and other kinds of um, psychological disorders. Do these things predispose people to addiction? Do some oh, of yeah, the absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Personality disorders uh, start very young. I mean, their genesis is way back. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and for example, ADHD is mm -hmm. a disorder that um, makes people very vulnerable to addictions, and they tend to have those um, those disorders from way back. And then. Uh, addiction to a particular substance or alcohol or smoking or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, they, that tends to be something they use to manage it. And as they get right. older, they have more access to it and they have more money. <laughs> yes. So they get really trapped into a lot of stuff uh, that causes tremendous problems for themselves and their families. And by the, th by the time someone comes to see you, uh, what is the situation there when a the patient comes in? Like, do they usually... Um, are they usually at a point where someone's already staged an intervention and they bring and they bring them in? Uh, they're brought in under the advice of someone else, or do they come and see you voluntarily? Um, like they've diagnosed um, themselves as having a problem and walked in on your own. Yes. Oh, well, it's a whole range. I mean, yeah. few people would walk into the clinic wanting to be there. Mm, right. um, people walk into the clinic because they feel they have to be there. Mm -hmm. That might because the the, the family has um, said that uh, they will ostracize them, their wife has said they divorce them or separate, 
or the uh, courts uh, are, are going through, uh, or the police have uh, give, charged them with something, and the courts are going through the process, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So people come in pretty desperate, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Then, then there are a group of people just figure that life isn't working out for them. Perhaps they've already divorced. Perhaps they've already lost custody of their children. Right. And they're trying to pull their life back together again because they're looking back and reflecting, you know, who was the cause of all this? <laughs> okay. And if it was me, then maybe I got to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have people like that. There, there are many people, young people who come in. Um, they, they come in because their schools have found uh, e-cigarettes or, you know, something that's, or, or marijuana or something mm-hmm. and the school's Want uh, can't want to uh, assist them, and so they they refer them to me. I get referred to by people who just turn up in hospital mm-hmm. and they're suffering from alcohol problems uh, and terrible withdrawals and so on. And so I meet them in the, in the hospital bed and talk mm-hmm. through what the problem is. Um, so there are various different ways that I receive people. Mm-hmm. And and it sounds like your your work takes a, quite a long time because I mean from the from the first meeting with the patient um, and then. To the point, like how how do you estimate when a person is okay to be on their own? Like how how does how long does that treatment process take? Yeah, it very much depends on the person. You know, some people take to recovery and they do all the things recommended, and they're very vigilant, uh, and they find a lot of momentum, and they mm-hmm. find that their lives are turned around, and they're very motivated. Um, in that case, um, uh, interventions by me would maybe only be for a couple of months or three mm-hmm. months, something like that. Okay. Um, and then they join a group, one of one of our group sessions, not not AA, but our own group sessions. And mm-hmm. I might see them once a month, or I might see them in group once every other week. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, um, our clients are really taught to manage themselves. They're taught to be their own therapists. Mm-hmm. It's very important that they should take a responsibility for their recovery going forward and be, have the tools that they can use. So self-efficacy is taught right from the very first. Uh, self-responsibility is taught right from the very mm. first uh, session. So it's important that clients go go off and try these tools and, and work on them. Uh, it's it's very um, uh, unhelpful for clients to be dependent and keep coming back uh, or coming back too mm. often. That that shows that things are not working out and the therapy is not working. And what's what, what are the key factors to having someone uh, maintain their recovery? Is it about social support? Um, having new motivating factors in your life or something like that? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit on two big ones. Yeah, yeah the, 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 the critical success factors, if I can call them that, yeah. the critical success factors are real openness to understanding I have a problem, mm-hmm. a real openness to understanding that others have a solution and I'm willing to do what they do, mm-hmm. willing to take the advice. So this sort of openness and willingness to ideas, um, that's, the big, that's the big one. Um, the second is having a family or spouse or girlfriend or friends who are supportive. They're not judgmental. They realize the person has a problem and a struggle and they're willing to be kind and helpful and pursue the recovery with them, mm. you know, side by side. So having couple sessions, family sessions is very important up, right. up front, just to okay. make sure there is someone to help. Um, I think the, the third thing that's a critical success a factor is that um, uh, the person uh, g- gets insight into who they are, what mm-hmm. makes them tick, what made them act in this in the past way, uh, in the past, and and how they're going to address the same needs that arose mm-hmm. that they used uh, addictions or addictive behavior to uh, satisfy, and how they're going to get those needs met in a healthy way. That mm-hmm. requires quite a lot of insight into what's going on, what's been going on in the past, and what's going on in the present. 
So those people who are willing to have insight, who are willing to look at themselves honestly and openly, they make a lot of progress. Um, in terms of the addiction treatment, what is the most challenging part? Is, is the stigma about being an addict an issue you face that makes it hard for you to reach out, um, make it, makes it hard for people to actually seek help? Um, yes, true, true, but that's a sort of public health problem. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a problem that the government's not yet tackling, but it is tackling tangentially through its uh, campaign on um, mental illness like depression and anxiety. Mm. You know, see the true me, those kinds of campaigns. They haven't yet tackled addiction in the same way. I hope they will. Mm -hmm. um, so within society, particularly within families, there's a great reluctance to go see a therapist a great reluctance for their children who may have addictions to go see a therapist. Um, so there's a lot of resistance uh, to that. Um, so when people come in, uh, they're carrying a huge amount of shame mm. and a lot of willingness to communicate and get behind all that shame. Uh, there's also somewhat of a social problem here in Singapore where people are unwilling to just express their emotions anyway, mm -hmm. express what's happening with them anyway, mm -hmm. and being rather reluctant and not being able to get in touch with their body and mm. their sensation, their emotions. That's a, that's a national, uh, if you like, a, a, a um, cultural um, barrier. Yeah. Um, so for those two reasons, you're right, you know, not many people find recovery, not many people succeed in recovery unless they're able to uh, negotiate those two very big barriers. So maybe just to expand on that a bit, like, um, if you have if someone listening to the show is uh, thinking that they might have a problem, what are the signs they can look out for? And and similarly, um, how can friends or family members of the, such a person spot such signs in someone they care about? Yeah, well, it depends on age, of course, and relationship, and how much contact they have with the person, the kind of addiction we're talking about. Because mm -hmm. we've we've been talking quite sweepingly about addictions, but there are many many different forms. Mm -hmm. Yeah compulsive, destructive, compulsive behavior can take. Um, so with a person who who has found that they're compulsive in their behavior, uh, notwithstanding all the suffering that's causing, uh, that it's causing, would have to step back and say, why am I doing this? And do mm -hmm. I want to continue? And itemizing how much destruction, how much suffering uh, it's causing is a good way to start. Mm -hmm. um, there's um, there's all kinds of um, behavior. Smoking is one that goes under the radar in Singapore, but it's mm -hmm. an extremely destructive, destructive um, addiction. Um, so if uh, if the person is willing to itemize, you know, what are all the things, all the problems that are being caused by my smoking or drinking, um, then that's a good start. Then they can get some insight into realizing that actually they want to continue this because it's causing so much suffering, so much cost, mm. both to health so to finances. Uh, that's a good start. Um, in terms of the, the, the loved ones, um, it's really observing their behavior. The, the, the most important relationship perhaps uh, where addictions arises in, in adolescence mm -hmm. and parents who are connected with their, uh, with their children who are in their lives uh, can observe, you know, are they just staying in bed? Have they dropped their hobbies? Are their friends now somewhat dubious? Have they lost their friends? Are they just absorbed in all their time and energy into whatever it is, gaming or um, or mm. perhaps pornography, which is another big problem in Singapore? Right. Um, are, are there health suffering, uh, sleep suffering, um, and so on and so forth? Yeah. These are all good indicators that something is up. And whilst the the adolescent may not be forthcoming, 
mm-hmm. you know, a bit of exploration, <laughs> a bit of triangulation with friends and teachers mm-hmm. is required. Mm. Okay, and from your, I mean, you've mentioned um, smoking, drinking, and pornography. From your time working in mm. Singapore, are these the most common types of addictions you've seen? Um, well, you know, the ones that come into the clinic are obviously, as we mentioned, quite serious. Otherwise, mm-hmm. there would be a lot of stigma and there wouldn't be necess- a, a, a big push, for example, from the legal side to, for, or um, relationships to push them mm-hmm. into the clinic. So, okay. yeah, I mean, the ones, the ones that I see, I'm, uh, I'm a certified sex addiction therapist. So mm-hmm. uh, half of clients are coming in on charges of uh, upskirting and um, uh, voyeurism, frotterism, uh, mm-hmm. exhibitionism, I think. Um, so, so they come into the clinic for that purpose. Um, there are other clients, um, are, uh, alcoholism usually comes along with smoking as does, um, substance abuse mm-hmm. come along with smoking. So I see a lot of clients with multiple addictions like that. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Singapore, I think there are some that are under the radar. I think smoking is under the radar. Mm-hmm. I think alcohol use, which is very destructive is under the radar. Mm-hmm. And I do think that internet pornography use, which is highly damaging to a person's ability to have a relationship, to right. have a a healthy relationship, I think that comes under the radar and we don't, we don't hear a lot of that. We don't have a lot of statistics mm-hmm. on it and it's not something that we're focusing on as a, as a major public health issue. Do you think it's particular to Singapore, like the alcoholism, smoking and pornography? Is it, uh, or is it just yeah, all. all global? Kind yeah, of all. I think it, yeah, exactly. I think in all developed countries, this is, mm-hmm. this is a massive problem. I'll give you an example. Um, so, so this is a bit of a, an older study uh, in Japan has shown that 30% of males mm-hmm. um, between the ages of 18 and 25 uh, have no desire to have a, a female sexual partner if they're heterosexual. Right. Okay. Uh, that, that they are so steeped into porn that they don't even have sexual functioning that mm. would work with, okay. uh, with the member of the opposite sex. That, that statistic is totally mirrored in the US and Europe and here, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure, but we don't have any statistics. Right. The sexual dysfunction from pornography is, a, is, an, is an actually global problem, mm-hmm. as is this, uh, this inability to connect with the opposite sex if, if you're heterosexual or same sex if you're not. Um, so this, this is a major public health problem, uh, mm-hmm. no doubt. But alcoholism and use of alcohol and alcohol abuse is a global problem. I mean, it's yes. a massive global problem. It's, it's, um, it's very, very significant in, uh, in Singapore as it is elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, smoking is a massive problem here. I mean, about a quarter of men in Singapore smoke, a mm-hmm. quarter of men. If you look at the statistics from the WHO on Singapore, we know about 16% of the population smoke. I mean, that's nearly a million people. Yeah, that's that's true. That's nuts. true. Yeah. Nuts. I, I'm lucky I managed so, to quit. <laughs> yeah. Well, good for you. Um, so and then so what what we see in the news quite a bit is drugs, right? And mm-hmm. um, drugs drugs do have a prevalence here, much higher than than we know because uh, know from from published statistics because mm-hmm. the published statistics are very very limited to only what the CMB find out through an arrest mm-hmm. and what. And the person who's in prison. These are tiny, but these are tips of the iceberg of any country. Right. What's below the iceberg um, is ge- is generally better measured in other countries, but is not measured at all here. Mm-hmm. So we don't get a good good sense. Um, obviously, it's skewed in the clinic. I see drug addiction as prevalent, but then I don't know how much that is in the mm. community. I'm, I'm actually the chairman of a charity called We Care Community Services. And okay. That's a charity that helps people, and we do have, I don't know, maybe a quarter or so of people who have substance abuse, mm-hmm. perhaps a bit less than that, a fifth. 
Um, and I see a lot there. And I see the availability of drugs in the community because I can mm -hmm. see from the prices, you know, prices is a sure indication of how, how um, big the, uh, the flow is. Mm -hmm. And I see the prices and I can see that methamphetamine uh, and ecstasy and pills like that uh, are available. Mm -hmm. um, but we just don't have a good handle on, on how prevalent that is. But it does get, tend to grab the headlines away from uh, really important public health problems like alcohol, smoking, um, and internet porn, internet gambling, mm -hmm. particularly uh, uh, poker, internet poker. And now that, um, I mean, um, sex crimes are also particularly hot in the media right now. Um, you talked about yeah. many of your clients being on sex charges and all that. I, I just want to know, like, yeah. when it comes to being addicted to something like sex, um, how this, how much does that, uh, how much ability do you lose in terms of knowing what you are doing, you know what I mean, when you commit a crime? Are, are you a slave to these addictions to a certain extent? Mm. Mm. Yeah. As all addictions are, I, I know they're causing tremendous risk and tremendous pain to me or suffering to me and, and other people close to me, mm -hmm. but I do it anyway. I mean, that mm -hmm. is the sort of litmus test. Mm -hmm. So yes, you're right. I mean, if, uh, if someone is, um, is acting out, as we, as we call it, as acting out and it's illegal, voyeurism, frustrationism, uh, exhibitionism, uh, I'm doing it, I'm, I'm compelled to do it. Now, I may compartmentalize the fact that there are victims. Mm -hmm. I may convince myself there are no victims because I don't get caught or I don't or the risk of me getting caught. And they don't know I'm observing them and so on. Mm -hmm. I, may, I may compartmentalize that, but in my, it's, not, it's not that I can't figure out that this is a crime, that I could get caught mm -hmm. and that the repercussions could be horrible to me. Yeah. I just do it anyway. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yes, that's a good part. Yeah. Um, do you think the pandemic has led to an in increase in addicting or addictive behavior? Yeah, um, and it goes along this sort of lines that I've noticed. This is just my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. I can't speak for general um, the general trends, but just from my own personal experience, it sort of goes along these lines. Um, people are, who were confined are going to be um, smoking more and drinking more mm -hmm. and using the internet more. Mm -hmm. So that means internet gambling and pornography and shopping, over mm -hmm. shopping. They'll be using these activities because they are trying to manage their stress, manage their boredom, manage their fear and anxiety, and also manage the, the friction of relationships within their household. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, when you're confined with your family, all those things that were sort of covered up uh, suddenly come mm -hmm. to the fore. Yeah. And the clashes and irritation and, and uh, all that come to the fore. And so there's lots of, um, there's a pressure cooker created mm -hmm. by the COVID. And people will use uh, these these addictions to try and manage the pressure cooker, you know, manage the the uh, the emotions that arise. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we see those nor those sort of general addictions rising, but we also see that drug addiction or drug use uh, comes down because the supply has been disrupted. Mm -hmm. And so, in the early part of this lockdown, I had I was uh, helping people. Um, with the withdrawal symptoms, which were quite severe in some cases. Mm, okay. Um, but then, you know, they, some of them found recovery that way because they just couldn't get their drugs. So that was great. Okay. Uh, and other people found a new addiction they didn't realize they had, like alcohol and smoking mm -hmm. and so on, uh, gambling. Um, so it's been a mixed bag, I have to say. Now, I thought, mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought that this, that the flow of clients would slowly dissipate as we mm -hmm. opened up. Yeah, that just has not been the case. It's just people have switched <laughs> to different kinds of addictions, I guess. Well, it, it's kind of, no, it's just kind of ratcheted 
up. It's like mm. uh, even though things are now open, people are still those who started to suffer are still suffering, and those who mm. weren't suffering before are still building up. <laughs> uh, those numbers are still building up. Uh, you know, part of it is that if you're in a house confined and you're sort of working from home your loved ones can see your behavior more and get more insight into just how badly you are behaving mm -hmm. just what kind of destructive behavior you're up to right. so does that you know that's pushing people into um into recovery by their families giving mm -hmm. them those ultimate things um, that's part of it well, I guess that might be the small silver lining to all of this. If people are, if more people are coming out and seeking help, because they are oh, yeah. more exposed yeah. to their families and so on. Um, just to yeah, add on, um, is there a seasonal aspect to addiction? Like, I mean, considering that the holiday season is coming, um, does this usually yeah. correspond with a rise in addiction, uh, addictive behavior? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so it tends to be when, when I'm with family, I'm most dysregulated, let's say, and I'm most, most, uh, um, what's available to me is a lot of alcohol, a lot of, uh, cigarettes, a lot of gambling, mm -hmm. you know, so those things are available and yeah, so it does become a powder keg, uh, holiday seasons are, are powder kegs, for people who tip into addiction or, or get or get uh, go further along in their addictive path, or mm -hmm. have had recovery for a while, and then suddenly mm -hmm. relapse. Right. So yeah, holiday season is pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, are there any tips for families or friends who know that there's someone in recovery? How to avoid maybe tempting them too much or exposing them? Um, tempting them or exposing them, I'm not sure they'd have a great deal of luck because mm -hmm. someone who is Really, um, moved into the compulsive behavior mm -hmm. doesn't need a lot of temptation or, or a lot of opportunity. They'll make their opportunity, and the mm -hmm. urges and cravings are intense, no matter what their loved ones do. Um, but yes, I mean, if if they can encourage them to see someone, if they can help them in their journey and turn up to therapy with them and ask, mm -hmm. you know, what can I do to help? What should I not do? Yeah. <laughs> then that would be really good. Um, and just show them links to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or, or Narcotics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. Read about the, 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 the problem online and what the, what the interventions are online. You know, become educated. If loved ones become educated, that's mm -hmm. really helpful. Um, of course, they can in the holiday season not drink at the, the, the table, mm -hmm. um, have alcohol in the house if mm -hmm. they feel that that, that uh, is a struggle for the person who's in early recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, they can do that um, and be sensitive to it. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And just out of curiosity, are there any new forms of addiction treatment that have caught your interest? Because I've been reading things about um, in some places they're experimenting with, I don't know, psychedelics, meditation, and so on. Yeah. Are there any oh, new Oh, yeah. Ones? Well, those aren't new. I mean, you know, as you know, meditation's been around for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but yeah. 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 It's but I see more people trying new things to combat, you know, um, like there's, there, there's more yeah, interest in holistic living, that kind of stuff. Yeah, all that healthy living stuff is never, is no, you know, is not new. But you're right. There are there have been some interventions that have been tried for particular for for example comorbid uh, um, mental disorders like depression, like mm -hmm. ketamine, is sort of taking off in the United States mm -hmm. as a way of managing depression. Mm -hmm. um, it's contra, it's generally contraindicated for someone who's addicted to substances. Yeah, though. that's um, what I was thinking. Because they like to abuse it. You know, yeah. general public are not are not vulnerable to addictions, broadly speaking, unless it's something powerful like smoking or alcohol. But 
For the general public, if they're given casimine for depression, are unlikely to abuse it. It's only a small group who, mm-hmm. who are, have ability to addictions, like substance people, abusers, that they are likely to abuse ketamine, so it wouldn't be indicated. But there are um, other uh, interventions, uh, new ones, uh, for example, um, uh, transmagnetic um, uh, stimulation, which Ooh, is okay. a kind of, it's a, it's a zapping, if you like, or, okay. or uh, a creation of electricity using okay. electromagnetic in the brain. Clinic that I work for does this TMS. Um, that there's, um, you know, hypnosis has been uh, popular for oh, yes. a long time, although the, the studies are, de- are pretty inconclusive. They don't show that it has particular efficacy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, is, um, there are interventions with um, uh, more and more uh, medications that they're experimenting with, mm-hmm. even inoculations, you know, okay. for, for certain drug addictions. Um, so, you know, there, the, the neuroscience is advancing, trying to find interventions, but ultimately there won't be one single intervention to a meaningful, purposeful, full life for a human being. There won't be one pill, one mm-hmm. activity. It will be um, trudging a road or of happy destiny in mm-hmm. recovery. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and from a public policy kind of standpoint, uh, what can governments or the authorities do to help reduce rates of um, addiction? Yeah, this is a really, really difficult, important public um, health question. Mm-hmm. You know, from, an, from, a, from a therapist standpoint, mm-hmm. we, we do need to consider harm reduction techniques and mm-hmm. harm reduction tools. If you're talking about smoking, then we do need to, to seriously consider heat not burn products and, uh, and e-cigarettes. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about um, uh, alcohol use, uh, then we really need to talk about how can we can restrict alcohol uh, mm-hmm. use to that yeah, we can, but but provide a lot more treatment for that and a lot more therapy, a lot more public messaging around responsible alcohol use. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're talking about um, sex addiction, then we really need much, much better um, uh, instruction in schools about sexuality, sensuality, intimacy, mm. healthy intimacy, right. and, and repeated um, lessons on that as children get older in age-appropriate ways. Mm-hmm. And we need a lot more parental um, engagement in, in, uh, in sex education and, and sex, uh, uh, normalizing uh, intimate sex uh, at appropriate um, levels, you know. Mm-hmm. So, there's a lot of stuff in society, I think. We do need to, to extend that See the True Me program to addictions mm-hmm. so that people um, don't um, or, or try uh, to move away from these, uh, these ter- this terrible shame and stigma that they've placed on people with addictions. Mm-hmm. Because while someone may start out doing something morally reprehensible by mm-hmm. taking heroin, they get to a point where they cannot stop and it's not a moral issue and it's not moral strength or a mm-hmm. character strength to right. stop. You know, it requires treatment and intervention and support. Um, so I think there's a lot of public uh, health uh, mm-hmm. information that we give. I think the final thing is that we can't continue to keep ratcheting up laws and making things um, more punitive because mm-hmm. addictions, people with addictions do not respond to punitive measures. Right. Um, they have we have a, 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 a proclivity not to respond to punitive <laughs> yes. or to respond to information, right? Yes. So, so we have to find a much better solution than just ratcheting up laws and throwing people in jail for long periods of time for upskirting and so on. We, we've got to find a better solution than that.
Do you have an opinion on whether, um, when it comes to narcotics, whether decriminalization works in terms of mm. reducing addiction rates and getting people into rehabilitation? Yeah, I, you know, it doesn't have to go to the extent of decriminalization mm -hmm. for rehabilitation and recovery um, to be effective in, in the community. Mm -hmm. um, I think the no tolerance policy for drugs is the correct response mm -hmm. for a small place like Singapore. But what I, what I would suggest is that we invest a great deal more public money in, in recovery, in, mm. uh, in getting um, practitioners uh, up to speed and finding the right people in the community to be practitioners, uh, fund more um, public awareness and uh, less shame. Mm -hmm. um, so recovery can be at the, uh, at the, you know, the interesting thing about it in Singapore is that they could do anything, you mm -hmm. know, because we are a small community, it's relatively homogenous, the government is well respected, as it should be, mm -hmm. and people are willing to, um, to do the right thing by their, by their community. Mm -hmm. So we, if, if anyone could lick addictions, we can okay um and it, it is possible yeah okay and just a final one um what message would you like the public to know or listeners to know about addiction uh i don't know whether it's something to encourage people to either seek help or maybe be more sympathetic towards uh people they see as addicts yeah i think those two are really really important first of all be aware that um, someone with an addiction is not simply immoral or has um, poor character or doesn't, ha doesn't have enough self-control. Someone with an addiction really has a mental illness that requires treatment and they, and they, are, uh, they can find and uh, benefit from treatment. That's the first thing. Second thing is um, to, to educate themselves on where help can be found and what addiction is. What, what is alcoholism? What is uh, addiction to methamphetamine? Um, and be um, be well well charged with mm. plenty of websites and uh, and people to contact. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's that's those are the two most important that you, you articulated them both. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you for being on the show, Andrew. Um, I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have too. Thank you. Take care. And that's all we have for our first episode of 2021. This show is brought to you by Yahoo Singapore, and you can find us on Acast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We've got a lot more great content coming your way really soon, so do stay tuned. Until then, this is Danny Osman, signing off. <laughs>